Hello and welcome to the Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. This week, we're going to meet another of the remarkable and inspirational thought leaders at the forefront of innovation that UBS supports and celebrates through its Global Visionaries programme. Today, we're meeting Ginger Krieg Dozier, the CEO and founder of Biomason. Biomason creates biocement without carbon emissions by using natural microorganisms similar to how coral reefs are formed. Concrete is the second most consumed substance on the planet after water, and it accounts for 8% of global CO2 emissions due to the firing of materials such as limestone and the calcination process. Formerly an architect, Ginger discovered that most supposedly sustainable products were only marginally better and was inspired to find a solution. As we'll hear, she set up a lab in her spare room and started a quest to grow a concrete brick, finally succeeding and quitting her professorship to start Biomason back in 2012. Biomason's goal? For its biocement to reduce 25% of carbon emissions from the concrete industry by 2030. It's a pleasure to welcome Ginger Kriegdozier to the programme. Ginger, welcome and thanks so much for being with us. Just to kick things off, give us a little bit of the origin story, not just of Biomason itself, but how how you came to be founding and running this 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 business. Absolutely. Uh, so my career started off in architecture. I went to Auburn University and participated in the Rural Studio program, where we designed buildings and built them one to one. And at that time, I was responsible for finding materials to be used, and a lot about sustainability was coming up at the time. But what I learned was that there were not many sustainable materials available. And once you started looking really deep into how the materials that we use for construction are made, I learned of uh, a lot of uh, CO2 emissions that we were not aware of as architects. So that was the first step in starting to take a critical role of looking at how materials were made. I became fascinated with cement. Uh, I learned how cement was made and why it was responsible for so much uh, CO2. But then later, when I went into practice, right before I began my career in academia, I was reading a book called Biomimicry, and it changed my life. In the book, uh, Janine Banius goes through different scientific researchers who are studying barnacles, muscles, and Something that I took away from the book was that barnacles can make a glue that's stronger than anything that we can make man-made. And it's all done in ambient temperatures underwater, just using the material sourced in the marine environment. And I had a, I had a thought, you know, if, if nature is able to produce materials like these and nature is able to grow strong and durable cements, why can't we? So that's when I began my search of, okay, how can we grow cement? I lived across the street from a 24-hour library when I was teaching architecture. I immersed myself in biomineralization. I started to understand just how coral reefs were formed, and I learned about a symbiotic relationship with microorganisms. So I converted my second bedroom into a lab and began working with bacteria to grow cement. After I moved to the UAE to take another position in teaching, I again, turned another bedroom into a second bedroom lab, um, as well as most of the house to really push the technology to get a proof point. Uh, Once I had a proof point, I applied for an award, found out that I won the award, and then had two weeks to decide what to do. And the answer for me was very clear. I knew that this technology had the power to change the world, that we needed to 
take a critical look at how we were making cement and offer a solution such as one from nature. So I quit my job teaching and started Biomason. Um, and that was in 2012. And since then, uh, the company has grown tremendously. Uh, we do have a licensing model because, you know, to make a deployment of a technology on the world, you have to fit within the manufacturing infrastructure. So we wanted to be the ones to understand the biology and make it, you know, just as easy to use by adding water so that our licensees could make whatever they want to make concrete wise with biocement. It's an absolutely extraordinary story, and I think that the, the the scale of the ambition, but married up with the the sort of the, the detail, you know, literally starting this in a, in a spare room is is extraordinary. We'll maybe talk a bit more about the journey the company's been on. But just on the timings, interesting. We're reflecting back on this starting this business in 2012 with real vigor. How would you sort of sum up how different the environment is around doing this now, Ginger? Because I know you've got some very ambitious goals in terms of reducing carbon emissions from the whole concrete industry as soon as 2030. We're now kind of ticking towards a midpoint. Obviously, we're speaking in the week when COP26 is is all happening uh, in, in Glasgow, a few hundred miles north from where I'm sitting right now. How, how different is the sort of the narrative, even just from now in 2021, from when you got started in 2012, around these kinds of, of issues? Not just the urgency, but the enthusiasm for all the stakeholders to make meaningful change. Absolutely. I mean, you know, climate change is the biggest challenge to solve this decade. I think that even over the past 18 months, we've seen more data, more information coming at us. The industry, the concrete industry has placed their own net zero ambitions, but also what we've noticed too between 2012 to to today are a lot of privatization of ESG goals. So for example, we have a joint development agreement with H&M and they have incredibly ambitious decarbonization goals, which align to, to where we're going as well. So we're finding more and more private corporations, you know, having their own ESG initiatives. But then also throughout the entire value chain, you, you start to see where the taxation on carbon is starting to become critical, where we are at the point where this is the decade to deliver. Well, yeah. And on that point, because a lot of people that I speak to around these kinds of themes really strongly believe that we're at a, a real inflection point. And this is obviously before we even get uh, the, the the decisions and commitments that will be stated or restated out, out of Glasgow. Do you go along with that? And is it to do with the fact that it's simply almost a business case in some instances, those commercial organisations that you mentioned there, you know, it will not be cost effective anymore to be a laggard on some of these ESG themes. It, are we there yet or is there still work to be done? I believe we are on the cusp. Uh, you know, when we look at where we're projected to go. So by 2050, nearly 70 percent, which is seven billion of the world's population will live in cities. So in order to accommodate the demand, we'll be putting up the equivalent of another New York City amount of buildings every month for the next 40 years. This was a great quote from Bill Gates' book, which, you know, you have to think, how are we going to make the materials of our future? How are we going to be able to accommodate the need for building stock, the need for infrastructure? So I think that's becoming more clear and a ubiquitous mindset. You know, how are we going to to solve these challenges? We simply cannot continue to put carbon up into the air, we're seeing the negative effects of that. So I think that there, beyond just the sense of urgency, I think there's more around planning 
of literally how we're going to do this. And it's an amazing business case uh, as well. Well, well, to that point then, I know I've seen some remarks from you before, Ginger, talking about the mission, your personal mission, and indeed the mission of Biomason to, to lead in this transition towards a, a truly planet-friendly construction. And those last three words, planet-friendly construction, given the pace of that development that you've just described, it is a striking image, isn't it? Is that really doable? I mean, it sounds like a development on a scale that would be prohibitive from being planet-friendly. Tell us why you don't necessarily agree with that. I think that we have to, you know, again, go back and look at, you know, taking a, a picture of how are we going to produce the materials of the future. So for us, you know, it was it was really clear about we're curing the disease as opposed to treating the symptoms. So you have to go back all the way to not just reductionary processes, making something less bad, but being able to take a true analytical look at what has to be true, what must be true to accommodate this population growth and be able to limit our amount of carbon into the atmosphere. And that's, you know, for us, that is what's exciting because biology does have the power to do this. You know, carbon's not the enemy in our minds. We use biology to eliminate the need to, to burn limestone in the first place. So Biomason has always taken the approach of let's solve these massive problems with biology. We truly believe this is the age of biology as opposed to the age of chemistry, which is where we have been. And I guess another really important part of that in terms of the Biomason story is the, is the team. And you talked a little bit about the origin story and it's, it's pretty humble beginnings. But now tell us more about the nuts and bolts of how things work, uh, Ginger. There's architects like yourself. You've got engineers. There's biologists, material scientists, all sorts of, of production associates. Presumably, talking about chemistry and biology, there is an extraordinary almost alchemy in terms of the team you have to put together to tackle a challenge of the scale. Absolutely. And that's such a beautiful way to describe that. We are at around 90 people today as I sit here and we have over 50 disciplines and it does require a multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary approach to being able to, to solve this big challenge. I mean, concrete is the world's most used human-made material and the second most consumed substance on the planet following water. So as you can imagine, you need quite a bit of perspectives to be able to solve these challenges in very unique ways that also fit within the existing infrastructure and value chain. So it's been an honest pleasure over the past decade building out these teams. There's not been one boring day in Biomason's life. Every day we are expanding and growing and you know getting closer to our goal as a company. Well, yeah, and it struck me when you mentioned some of the brands with whom you work to, to help deliver their goals, often very ambitious, whether that's low carbon buildings or to, to head towards, you know, net zero as, as a body corporate. Collaboration, presumably, also absolutely critical here, uh, Ginger. And you already talked a bit about the change in the narrative between 2012 and 2021. Do you see that again now in terms of the enthusiasm for collaboration for all stakeholders, whether they're private, public, big corporates, individuals. Has that narrative again shifted in a positive way in terms of the enthusiasm to work together to solve this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you look at, you know, we have to solve these problems together. I mean, we certainly can't exist in, you know, two bespoke facilities trying to imagine what the world's problems are. Uh, we have to work with, you know, partners and collaborators to really be able to solve the challenges, not only that they have today, but the ones that they see in the future as well. 
I think that, you know, something that I, I take away from after visiting, you know, several facilities in the value chain over the past decade, and even prior when, you know, I was working mostly from an architectural perspective is that R&D and innovation is typically not in the construction industry, but it is becoming more and more. And what we see ourselves as is being able to be that partner, be the development partner with the value chain in the construction industry. It feels again like there's a different mood, a different, I don't know, expectation, optimism almost around what COP26 might signal to the world, even allowing for the fact that, you know, the head of the Chinese leadership isn't there or Jair Bolsonaro is not there from Brazil and so on. Do you sense that? You know, we would have seen a couple of iterations since Biomason was was founded. Do you see on this level, on this sort of supranational and intergovernmental level, that there is been a change which is happening at a commensurate pace with the change you've described from the private sector? Yes. I mean, I would say that, you know, of course, with the rise of social media, even over the past 10 years, the conversation has become more robust. Uh, You know, the more and more downstream, you know, we get with how materials or technologies change our everyday lives, the more we become advocates. So what I do see is much more advocacy coming from entire populations on this. But to be clear, you know, when we look at just exactly where population growth is expected to happen, we definitely see a lot in China and India and Nigeria. And, you know, for sure, like the technologies that we're developing across the planet need to take in mind and putting, you know, technologies where they need to be so that we're not continuing to go in our same mode of operation, if you will, of emitting carbon or learning the lessons that we've already learned. And I think that's that's really the challenge, you know, taking stock of what has to change and how those commitments are made. And that's, you know, all of our hope. Our hope is that the commitments are made and more importantly, followed through. So I do think that there's some optimism around that. There needs to be more, you know, for sure. I think, you know, something that I've noticed even in the past 18 months is that our biggest risk is that we as an entire species turn apathetic. To me, that's that's the, the biggest danger. We have to have hope that we can make a difference and make these changes and, and also understand that it will be hard, quite hard and, and quite difficult to do this. But as a, as a collective, this is what has to happen at this time. And I think never in, in you know, in at least in my lifetime, and, and certainly since 2012, has that urgency been more present and in our faces that it's it's no more, let's push, push our dates back. Uh, let's have 2020 goals or 2030 goals, you know, it's, or 2050 goals. Now it's, we have to make these changes now. This is actually the decade to do it. And we have the data to support that and be behind it. Just talk to me a little bit briefly, Ginger, about what recognition means and how, how that can help. And I'm speaking, of course, you know, Biomason has won lots of different uh, awards. Uh, you've been recognised. I mean, one of the reasons I'm talking to you is because you've been recognised as a UBS Global Visionary, of course. What do those kinds of moments, recognitions offer you? And in the case of, of the Visionaries programme, is it also about unlocking new channels to find other partners to work with, to look at new and innovative ways of raising additional finance? What, what do those kinds of schemes and recognitions? What what do they mean in real terms for you and your colleagues? That's a great question. Um, You know, to answer it in in a biological sense, it's exponential. The more that we have recognition for what it is that we're doing, uh, the more 
outlets and partnerships that we get, the faster we can achieve the goals that we have decided to be for the planet. Um, so, you know, certainly it's, it is about all the introductions. It's about, you know, by Mason eventually becoming a household name. And that's our goal. We, we have to be that ubiquitous, just like Portland Cement is ubiquitous today. Yeah, absolutely. A question that I've actually been privileged enough to have asked a, a number of the global visionaries I've spoken to over the last few years, Ginger, is about, and it's a bit of a cliche, so forgive me if you've been asked this or a variant of it many times before, this, this truism that you learn more when things go wrong than when they go right. I wonder, do, do you recognise that that notion? And indeed, whether you're working in academia or in the private sector, or when you kind of struck out on your own and took these this big risk, really, is that still the case that you, you need to have these set Setbacks. And does that offer maybe some sucker, some encouragement for all of us when we look at the, the setbacks that the whole planet has been going through over the last few few decades? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's how you grow. You can't, you know, you, you have to ask better questions and and be able to take those steps back to be able to grow. For us, that is where the growth is possible. There's no such thing as a perfect plan. There's no such thing as executing on a on a 50-year plan, you know, from what we can establish today. But it is about being nimble and it is about being reflective and recovery. And to me, I mean, that's just part of how I, I operate in my own life. When you stop growing is when you stop learning. I guess from from your perspective and from the perspective of, of Biomason as a as a corporate entity, what's the kind of the next key key marker? Obviously, you've got some very ambitious goals that I mentioned right at the top: twenty five percent reduction in carbon emissions from the whole concrete industry by by twenty thirty, which we can see is hugely ambitious and and demands drives real real change. What are the markers as you see it? How far ahead do you look? Is it a question of you know again another cliche taking each day at a time, or or do you necessarily have to be like that and say you know. 2022's headline is going to be this, 23, 24, 25, and so on. How, how do you how do you look ahead when the scale of the challenge is so vast? Well, we actually look ahead further than that. So we look ahead further than 2030 because 25% is just, you know, one of the goals. So a lot of it for us becomes, you know, what, what supply chains will be available in 2030, 2040, 2050. Um, it's about making the right decisions today that put us on the correct path. So for us, it's, it's about zooming in and zooming out, looking ahead, making plans, but also looking at, okay, here are the stepping stones that we need to achieve. Like what must be true for this to be able to be possible? And I think this goes back to even the day that I remember sitting on a stoop in London with, with my husband and co-founder, you know, we, we knew that this needed to be a licensing technology. We needed to deploy this by putting this technology in others' hands. And so that is how you and deploy, you know, across the planet. I mean, it is an aggressive goal. We do have multiple plans on this, but it, it is a Manhattan Project style execution. And it is about being able to have the correct data in front of you of looking at where things fall out, if you will, in terms of supply chains. So those decisions that you make today, you know, the organisms that we use, the supply chains that are needed, the simplification of the technology, all of those have to be true to be able to hit that 2030 goal. And I actually think that's why we did it. We, we did the 2030 goal so that we could understand what must be true today to be able to get there. And of course, things will be nimble and we will have to rearticulate as we go. But I do believe that the standard curve has been established on how we do that. I think the rest of it is the data points and details that come in in terms of ensuring that we are absolutely on the critical path 
and that we have the measurability to enforce that. Well, perhaps finally, Ginger, and I, we always like to end with a bit of a sort of a call to action to our listeners. And I wonder if anyone listening to you today feels you know, motivated to change their approach or review how they are going to make their decisions, whether that's on a corporate level or on an individual level. And I can't believe anyone listening to you wouldn't have that motivation. What should they do as a general point, as a starting point? Is it about finding out more about Biomason? Is it about reviewing the way they make their own decisions on the day to day? Perhaps people ask you that quite often. Well, look, I don't think I've got it in me to set up a lab in my spare room and tackle this huge problem almost single-handedly at the outset. What can people do, though, if they want to try and affect real change? Absolutely. I mean, I would say be bold. You have nothing to lose. Um, you have everything to gain. And you'll you'll learn a lot along the way and you'll grow beyond the expectations that you may have had. Taking risk is, is part of, you know, this critical time that we're in. I find it fascinating and exciting. And I think that what, you know, motivates me is looking at how many new technologies and new ways of thinking are coming out. But you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. So, you know, you know, certainly it's helpful uh, to look at the past and look at, you know, other, you know, like moonshot is exciting just to see, you know, what is the impossible and making it the possible. Looking at, you know, even five years ago, what did we think of plant-based meat? We, we, we only really knew a few things, but now it's becoming so common. So taking those chances, taking the risk and understanding that the world is in a constant state of evolution. Ginger Creek Dozier, thank you so much for talking to us. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda every week here on Monocle 24. You can find out more about the work of Ginger and her colleagues in Biomason. Simply head to biomason.com now. And for more about all the global visionaries in the UBS programme, head to ubs.com and search Global Visionaries. In the meantime, you can listen again to this and every episode, including our archive of other brilliant visionaries at monocle.com and across all good audio and podcast platforms. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24.